Yeah, well, my main interest as a youngster, so, you know, at school growing up was was football. I think like most boys and I guess girls now here in the UK, you know, we all wanted to try and get into professional sport and football was my thing. Um, I played at a reasonable level, but I think I played at a reasonable level because of my fitness. I think there's technically better footballers than me out there, but I, I was always physically fit. So, you know, indirectly when I look back, um, you know, I had to cycle everywhere, partly because of the the, the geography of where I lived um, and, and how public transport was, was limited. So that was part of it. Uh, and again, the running side of things, I would, you know, it wasn't a conscious decision to be a runner. It was just, I enjoyed it. And I never really, it never really registered on my radar. That was, you know, physically running a decent distance or riding my bike. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpri. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpri's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is going to give us some pretty concrete, helpful hints on how we take care of ourselves, but more specifically in his specialty. He is a podiatrist and the clinical director at Podiatric Rx. Um, previously, spent 10 years at the Royal Orthopedic Hospital in Birmingham. Um, his specialty is kind of musculoskeletal trauma, uh, predominantly civilians, although he did tell me before we got going, he has some military experience in some of the injuries in that uh, area as well. He's a runner, cyclist, interested in football, which uh, for the North American listeners, that means soccer, I assume. Um, welcome to the show, Mark Gallagher. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you for the invitation. And it, I, I wanted to clarify that because I think it would be a hopefully immediately clear by your accent that when we say football, we're not talking about American football. <laughs> but since you hadn't said anything yet, uh, I figured it would be easier to just to clarify on my own. So there was no no confusion about what we're talking about. Indeed, yeah, this is, um, yeah, soccer as as we know here in the UK. Uh, the American football is just is too complex when it goes on too long. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, uh, so I live in the middle of the country where we have a American football team that's done pretty well the last couple of years, though they're struggling this year. And our soccer team is usually one of the better teams in um, Major League Soccer. And I, I kind of got my wife into watching our soccer team. And then I myself have gotten into watching the American football team, even though I didn't grow up playing it. And she's just like, how long are these games going to go on for? Like, they just keep going. And I think part of the problem, especially if you didn't grow up in a culture that watches, you know, American football, is there's so much starting and stopping versus if you're watching soccer or traditional football, the game plays. Like, there's no, I guess if injury time or penalties and, you know, fouls and that aside, 
is essentially, you know, the half is played, we get halftime, and the other half is played. There's no stopping. There's no timeouts. None of that stuff. So I think it's a little easier to watch because there's always something happening. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to ask a little bit about your kind of athletic background, um, running and cycling. Did that did that come prior to getting into podiatry, or was it or was it the other way around? Did they happen at the same time? How, how did that develop? Yeah, well, my, my main interest as a youngster, so you know, at school growing up was was football. I, I think like most boys and I guess girls now here in the UK, you know, we all wanted to try and get into professional sport and football was my thing. Um, I played at a reasonable level, but I think I played at a reasonable level because of my fitness. I think there's technically better footballers than me out there, but I, I was always physically fit. So, you know, indirectly when I look back, um, you know, I used to cycle everywhere, partly because of the the, the geography of where I lived um, and, and how public transport was, was limited. So that was part of it. Uh, and again, the running side of things, I would, you know, it wasn't a conscious decision to be a runner. It was just, I enjoyed it. And I never really, it never really registered on my radar. That was, you know, physically running a decent distance or riding my bike uh, a decent length of time. But as you get older, you start to look back at how much time you did commit to to those events. And, and, and therefore it just became part of, I guess, my psyche really. And I played football, um, up until I was 41, I'm 48 now, and I stopped mainly because of a back injury, which is then when I spent more time running and riding. And then the age element, and we may touch on it in, in sort of the, the different problems your, your audience might encounter. But, mm-hmm. you know, and I think when we spoke before we started about your, your life in triathlon, you know, the fatigue element, sometimes the quality in your running or your riding becomes affected because you're doing two disciplines. You know, for triathletes doing three, I always say to my triathlon patients with injury, you know, the beauty is you share the load across three disciplines. The problem is that you're always running on empty or you're there or thereabouts on empty. So, you know, I had to choose at some point, I, I'm saying I had to choose for a performance element. Um, so my preference is my bike, you know, I, I I ride my bike a lot. I, I'm a road racer or, or I ride my bike and I race bikes. And bizarrely this year, I've got into cyclocross, which is um, a completely dis- different discipline. And I've, I'm actually really enjoying it because it's a different way of training. But yeah, I, for me, riding a bike or running, I don't see it as um, anything other than it, it was always part of my lifestyle. One other thing that's interesting is so like people in the United States seem to come at sports from like this really highly structured viewpoint, like not everybody. I mean, you can't make an entire blanket statement, but, but I think it's not uncommon to see parents like want to have their kids be in this program and do that, like just very regimented exercise to be, try to become whatever, you know, sport it is become great at it and i always think it's interesting that like you're talking about what is essentially completely unstructured unscheduled like cycling and running time you know as a as a young person not like 
uh, coach said I had to go run five miles to get ready for practice. It's not that it's just, it's just how it was. And you spent time moving and that created the, you know, the fitness level for you to excel. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, I look back, I, I realized fairly early on in, in my fledgling, you know, when I'm talking about a teenager and, and playing football at a reasonable level, that if I was to give myself a fighting chance, I needed to be the fittest on the pitch. It was that simple. And that's the one area that I could improve on. I mean, technically, I could have improved as well, but there was a glass ceiling on that one. But the, from from a, a physicality perspective, that's about the person, you know, and I, I say a lot to, again, my runners on a return to run program who actually have had maybe their second or third injury in a short period of time. You know, if you don't have a running history, you know, your, your physiology is different. You know, your bone strength and your soft tissue strength is also affected. So, you know, if I look back, with the exception of the back injury, I really hadn't had any, any other injuries in my entire uh, life leading up to that you know I, I played football I, I rarely missed games through any sort of injuries maybe some contact injuries at times but nothing in terms of soft tissue and so I, I think you know the indirect effect of just enjoying being active um, I was always competitive in anything that I ever wanted to do so if I ran and ran let's say at school and against other people then I'd, I'd obviously clearly like most people would want to win and, and I think I performed reasonably well uh, and and I think when you come to be um, a competitive cyclist at an older age, which is really what I did, the big concern is is where are you on that pecking order in terms of performance? Um, you know, my <laughs> my starting point is I didn't want to come last in any event or race that I did. And you know, the fortunate thing is in the races that I've been involved in, you know, I've very much been able to hold my own. I've never been in the top five or ten but I certainly haven't been in the back five or ten either so I've, I've actually I've enjoyed it but I still I don't look back and think what if I did that earlier and what if I did that with more structure um, but also being active and continuing to be active I think is for me personally as a clinician I think it creates that empathy that you can have with other injured runners cyclists golfer whoever because we would both understand the, the, the psychological effect of being injured. And, you know, it, I deal with cold orthopedics, I deal with mechanical stresses and strains, but you can't forget there's a patient on the other end of that problem that is probably going through different elements of um, anxiety, depression, whatever, you know, they're, they're challenged because they're not active and because they're not active, they lose the confidence. and. And I think you know that that's probably the one one area that I'm I'm pleased that I've been able to remain active and, and relatively fit. You know, I, I kind of have this down on my things I wanted to ask you about. It, it, and partially because you know I've got a, I've had a number of injuries throughout my years, predominantly during college, where just it's a crucible of trying to get as fast as you can and tons of racing and you're racing all year, um, but you know, I've seen a number of healthcare providers throughout the years, but I always tend to want to find somebody who's also active because it just doesn't seem like 
there's quite the right connection. If, if say I went to like a general practice doctor or something, and I said, oh, I've got this. And it just seems like the, I don't know if the, the, the diagnosing or, or what exactly, but there's just some disconnect between how to treat that situation if they don't seem to have some kind of background themselves. So would, would you say being active and, you know, also having your practice, like that combination is what makes what you do unique versus say somebody who doesn't have that kind of athletic side? I, I think it, for me, it creates an advantage. And, but you know, that, that sort of then looks at my other clinical colleagues that I would work with who excel in sports medicine, but have no active interest in being active themselves. But I think for that group of clinicians, they've probably been around the industry for a long time and they're very aware of the, the key components to you know, what makes an athlete, whether that's a professional or you know, an amateur athlete. I think that what I find reassuring, if that's the right word, a number of my patients breathe a, an air of relief when, because for most people it's this, it's this context, which is when they know that you've worked in trauma and military trauma and you're working with a blast injury or a gunshot wound, sometimes they feel that like the problem that they're coming with, if it's an Achilles tendinopathy or they have knee pain, is that for somehow that doesn't register on my radar. Mm -hmm. Well, everything is, everybody, I, I say this and I bore people to death with it. Everybody is case study one. You're coming to me with a problem. I'm not judging what that problem is. I'm just thinking, what? How can we find a solution? What's? How do we? How do we plan this out? And and what you will come with is some pre-existing beliefs. I have to respect that as well. I need to know where that. I don't know. Well, I don't actually need to know where it's come from necessarily, but I need to understand what your thought process is about the particular injury that you have. And I think having injuries or being around people that are injured or, or working in a team environment or even working in a discipline where it's a single athlete in isolation if you've been around those environments i think you probably have a better skill set or a more appropriate skill set to deal with that injured athlete and, and in a similar respect do you need to know every sport that's coming to you i guess the one that will throw a curveball to me at times is, is, is dance injury, you know, because most of the dancers, either ballet, um, whatever dance you choose, you know, footwear strategy for me in terms of how I manage somebody with a knee problem as a runner or somebody on a bike, you know, I'm invariably modifying or manipulating what's happening at a foot level. But if you're not wearing footwear, then the tools in the bag for me are going to be quite limited. We can get you stronger. We can get you maybe with better flexibility or better landing patterns. But I guess, you know, if you put me in front of a dance or a dance population, I'll have, I should have value somehow, somewhere. But because I'm not a dancer, and, you know, if you ever saw me in the dance floor, you'd recognize that quite quickly. I can't empathize with that group as well as maybe of the other sports and disciplines I've been heavily involved in. So I, I think there's an element of, even within sports medicine, as a clinician, you need to recognize that there are probably better qualified people than you because you've had regular exposure to that particular discipline uh, and you understand the forces, stresses and strains and the, just how that dancer might deal with their injury. And I think that puts you ahead of the curve. So if you're saying to me, you know, I've got a colleague, 
you know, she's a ballet dancer. Uh, are you the right person? Well, I'm probably going to add value. But if there's another one of me who's got more dance experience or has been a dancer, then probably that's the right person for that, for that individual. So I think there's an element of you have to understand the mechanism somehow, somewhere. You, you know, understand, I, I think, you know, we touched on it earlier. The, the sport, you know, what connects every sports person is that willingness to want to be better, to compete, the, the, all the other bits that come with being active in sport. I think there's a connecting thing, but there are some specific elements in each sport, discipline, whatever, which, which might create a different path for somebody to, to follow. I have to back up a little bit because you, you said a lot. So there's a lot of things that can go on. Um, but you're talking about people coming to you and if they know you, you can come from that, like have that military trauma background and they kind of minimize themselves like, like well, I'll just like my Achilles hurts. And, uh, you know, like that's not that big a deal. It's, it's, it's like the same thing you even said, remembering that like there's an injury, but there's a person attached to that injury it's just like, it's like this weird minimization of themselves. Like, oh, I, that's, that's, I'm not important because that's clearly worse than anything I'm dealing with. So like, don't worry about me. I, I don't know. I'm not sure where that comes from. You know what I mean? Like I do it too. I, I, I think in thinking in, there's definitely episodes of the podcast where I talk to like say runners that are faster than me. And like, I'll minimize my own accomplishments because I'm like, ah, like I'm not, you know, I'm not like that person, but I'm not sure where that, or like where that mentality comes from to like minimize your own situation, especially coming to you where it's like, clearly this is a problem. They come to you. They love to have it resolved, I'm sure. But then at the same time, like right at the last minute, they're in front of you and then they kind of like back away, you know? I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not intelligent enough to, turn about the psycho psychology of the person to that detail but I, I agree you see it a lot in clinical practice and at times it might be because they're sat in the same waiting room as somebody who's got some form of you know a bit of kit on the leg and it's like wow that's a problem and it's like well you know that's if you're not able to do the things that you want to do then that's a problem you know and and if somebody wants to judge that from outside of our circle that's fine that's up to them but you know I know what I'd be like if I couldn't ride my bike because of an injury I'm going to be a grumpy person somehow somewhere and that's going to negative effect on all key elements and 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 I think what what I try and say to to that injured runner if if that's who it is then you know this is context this is creating a problem for you you can't do the things that you you do and enjoy and and, and let's just you know, let's focus on this bit whether you see somebody outside that you think looks in a worse position or is more deserving that's that's a judgment call on that person's behalf but but for me when i'm seeing somebody for the first time and and you know I, i'll always go well you know what's the story or how can i help or what's the problem you know it's that opening question um you know, as, as you're listening to their story, you're starting to think already about how you might provide that solution. What you're not thinking of as a clinician is, wow, that's a bit minor, or really, have you seen what's outside in the waiting room? You know, there's, there's, there's no, it would, and I don't think I've worked in any unit or team where we've had those types of discussions because 
if it's a problem enough for you to pick up the phone, make an appointment, turn up to the location, then it's a problem in any way, shape or form. So, yeah, I guess it's a human nature thing that I'm sure there's books out there and I, I probably need to read them. But, um, yeah, I, I think it is. And, and, you know, you mentioned about running times earlier and what I always find interesting with runners. So when we're doing treadmill analysis, for example, we do get analysis. Yeah. Um, my first question to them is, what's your 5K time? Because your 5K time will then look at their tempo speed and therefore you can yeah. set the treadmill to 14 kilometers an hour, whatever it's going to be. Right. And, the go and, and, and I would say nine times out of 10, your runner will say, um, yeah, well, I'm not that quick. And I go, whoa, before you commit to a number, <laughs> be careful what you say next. Because I know what my tempo pace is. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you're waiting for them to say, are they, big, are they quicker than you? Are they slower than you? Where are you? You know, it's like, yeah, we've all got, it's, we all have this feeling of where we are on this pecking order of, yeah. I guess that's, that's human nature. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, I find that, I, and I am absolutely positive that there's probably some egomaniacs out there. However, I have met and interacted with athletes from, People like on, so if you're on the YouTube channel, you know, if you're just listening, there, there's a YouTube channel version where you can see uh, Mark's very wonderful background and skylight and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I also do a running show and I, people, you know, comment and ask me questions and they're like people that are just starting out. So like, you know, running 50 minute 5Ks or just trying to complete. So I've, I've talked to people from that spectrum all the way through Olympians and I don't know that I've yet met anybody that's not like, I will say self-deprecating, but just humble is about it. Like, like, I don't know that anybody's like, I'm the greatest. You know, I, I think everybody understands they've been beat before. They're probably going to get beat again. And even though like if they're faster than us, we look up to them and go, oh, I wish I was that fast or whatever they don't necessarily see it that way because they're like, there's somebody faster than me and I wish I was that fat. Like there's, and even if you're at the top, I don't even think that those, those men and women, I don't, you know, I, I go back to, um, I bring her up a lot because she's my easiest touch point. My uh, friend and former coach, Barbara Lindquist, who is um, a pro triathlete for a number of years. I think she raced for 10 years. She raced in the 2004 Olympics. She was ranked number one in the world. She's the like, she's the most humble, helpful triathlon coach you'll ever meet. Like she'll, it doesn't matter if you've never done a triathlon before and you're 300 pounds overweight and you're just trying to finish. She'll spend as much energy on you as somebody trying to win the Olympics. Like it, it's, so it's just weird. Like that we minimize ourselves yet. We all have this very same experience despite what our speeds are yeah so um but so how do you how do you suss that out of people do you do you do you get people you're like do you get people that underplay it you'd be like i i need you to go a little bit faster or or do people usually give you a a realistic range for themselves well, well interestingly some people actually don't know what their pacing schedule is okay. which is it from an injury risk perspective is of concern because um, 
you know, the, 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 from, from, from being a runner perspective, you know, being a, um, a robust runner is the ability to tolerate multiple impacts. You know, that's, that's all it is. And when you, you know, if you spent a day with me or a week with me and you looked at the running population injuries that we see, there's some very distinct little subsets. Um, so that's people that have gone from zero to hero quite quickly. Um, and they obviously break down. There's cumulative load over time. There's back-to-back running days. All of these things which have a physiological reason why they break down um, are all relevant to the discussion in terms of, well, one, how do we minimize the risk? Or, well, how do we solve the problem? How do we minimize the risk of it happening again? If you don't know your running time, and I'm not saying you need to be geeky in terms of Strava stats every single time, but you need to know what your tempo pace is first and foremost, because there's a neuromuscular speed to which you will naturally move. And as you get stronger and more robust, you will modify that, 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 that tempo pace, if you like. So when the question is asked, what's your 5K time? And they don't know that. It tells you that there's a risk factor there, which is they're not sure what their body's capable of. And that starts a discussion, which is, I'm not saying that you've got to map everything out, but let's say we're on a return to run program and we're eight weeks down the line because we've got you stronger, you, your tissues are more compliant, you're not getting pain walking around day to day, which is our starting point for returning to run. The question is, where do we start with your return to one program? Because the questions you will ask me is how often, how far, how quick? Mm-hmm. Well, if we don't know your tempo pace, then we're just, we're just clutching at straws. We can make an assumption, but you know, my return to run protocol is to run every third day. You've got two days as a physiological window to recover, and we're gonna go in and around 80 to maybe 90% of your tempo pace. Because the natural reaction to most injured runners returning to run is I'm going to run slower. Well, if you run slower, your mechanical makeup will be different. So your contact time on the floor will increase. Your knee flexion moments will increase. You're just going to change things because you think you're dampening down impact force. Possibly that might be what you're thinking. So I'm saying to my runners, there's a window that I want you to work in. I don't want you to slow it all the way down here. I want you to work within a window that is close-ish to where you need to be for your natural running rhythm if you like mm-hmm. i remember you know i never ran a half marathon i wasn't mentally strong enough and i think physiologically as well you know myself and, and my ex running mate we did a number of half marathons on one of those half marathons we continued our training to do a full marathon probably four months later and the longest i got to was an 18 mile run and i just said to my mate afterwards i can't do this i'm not enjoying it i'm broken i was playing football and I was riding my bike at the same time so there's an element of stupidity in that as well from my perspective in terms of fatigue but the biggest challenge that we had as a running partnership we were a similar size we were you know our training pace would have been probably 6 6 minute 45s per mile so what's that four 425 kilometers um, is we found it really difficult to run slower to get more distance in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if your Garmin is the same as mine, but if, if you go over a certain pacing strategy, you'll start bleeping at you. Mm-hmm. So we would run together and we would get reminders to run slower. Well, that was also part of the frustration for me is I couldn't run slower to get more distance. I just found it harder to run slower. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's this, this, there's this ingrained neuromuscular pacing within us, which is your tempo pace. And yeah. That, yeah, you can improve that over time, but fundamentally how you start and how you work out your timing strategies 
will partly dictate how we look at return to run program for you. You've got to have those metrics at least available to, to refer to so we can start building blocks again. You said a lot of things I think are, think are interesting. One of the things I wanted to nail down was what you mean by tempo pace, because people use that term for different meanings. Well, I say tempo, I usually mean zone three, if that means anything to you. Yeah, yeah. So like zone four would be like 5K pace. Zone yeah. three would be like a slow 10K, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. So that, are we, are we on the same page? Are we still talking? Same talking page. About the same? Okay. Same page. Okay. Yeah, so th threshold will be zone four and, and pushing zone four because, yeah. you know, it, it's like me and you running the, uh, a 10, well, let's say a 5K together and we're just not going to be able to talk because we're sort of towards the top end right. capable of. Right. And as men, we wouldn't accept that. So we'd still be trying to talk. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Okay, so I just, you know, I, I'm absolutely that, that's the intuitive thing, right? Exactly what you said is like come back from an injury, you want to go slower, but then like you adjust your gait if you or your you know the mechanics adjust when you're when you slow down. I've actually been dealing with this recently. Like I noticed that I hadn't been engaging my glutes enough on the right side, just the right side, so that I was getting like excess strain on my soleus because it was taking more push-off power instead of using my glutes. So like, I've got to like consciously get back into that a little bit. Just little things, but it adds up miles and miles and miles and all of the impacts. And that, as far as injury risk is concerned, it's something I don't think people take into account enough. And it's hard, it's hard to take into account because you do it somewhat subconsciously to try to baby the injury. And then if you can't see yourself or have somebody to see you to go, no, then it's hard to diagnose that that's the issue until you've re-injured an area, it hurts. And then you go, something was wrong. They, they come back to you and you go, okay, let's, let's start over. But the, the idea of coming out at tempo pace is interesting. I don't know that, you know, like I guess I've had a number of injuries over the year. I don't think I've had anybody ever suggest that to me, um, but it does make some sense of trying to have that more locked in, you know, I'll call it natural gait instead of trying to go slow and baby it and doing weird yeah. things and overcompensating and cry, you know, creating other issues. I remember you got that buffer zone, you know, talking that 80 to 90% zone. Right, right. 100%. If you know you've got a 5k route, it's the route 5k each time without taking your Garmin, and you'd be roughly within a problem time you're up, unless you were feeling super strong and so yeah, is it's because you see clinical practice, even though the work you're doing analysis is very much based on even though you um the treadmill, it's a slightly arbitrary environment. You see the changes if you change it from 14k an hour to 10k an hour. This is that you see in terms of landing mechanics. So it comes back to metric, being aware of of where your body is in terms of what its speed is, if you like. And then if you're listening, Mark's cutting out a little. We're getting most of what he's saying. I think he can still hear me, um, but. We might try switching back to your onboard mic 
So apologize as well. We switch things. We may edit this out. We may not, depending on how quick it takes. And we'll get a little bit of feedback from my mic, but just so we make sure we actually hear you. And then we'll just need you to say something real quick, Mark. Yeah, I'm off now. Okay, good. Yep, we're good. I, I don't know if it was what it was. Anyway, so we'll, we'll get back on. Th thanks for being patient with us as we adjust things. We're trying to make sure you can actually hear Mark and, and the good things he has to share with us. Um, so I, I do want to ask you, and you probably get this a, a fair bit, but like, what would be, are there like commonalities? Are there very common um, injuries you see over and over and over again? Or is it like just a wide variety of things like, oh, I've never seen this before. I, I assume there's some kind of like, common circumstances that happen to people um you know let's try and put it in the top five you know the commonest thing i see within my civilian world is is plantar heel pain so plantar fasciitis i mean there are three subsets of plantar heel pain but you know, let's say plantar heel pain is a generic term achilles tendinopathy will be there uh, kneecap pain so patellofemoral joint pain uh, stress response, stress fracture, that's probably more relevant in my professional football world rather than, uh, my, so my running population is a big bone stress combination and that can be sort of foot stress fractures and, and tibial stress fractures or stress responses. Um, I, I think probably the further you go from the foot and ankle, the less impact I'll have unless there's some obvious like asymmetries. You know, if you've got a leg length difference of two centimeters, there's gonna be a mechanical cross somewhere. Um, so balancing it up will be a sensible choice. But but I would say that those are the main groups, you know, that probably is 80% of your population. And the reason why it's not dull, because if you've seen the same thing 80% of the time, you're thinking, you know, how, so how can you enjoy clinical practice? Is it's, it's that biomechanics element, which is, you know, we are applying mechanical principles to human tissue. And the difference is that human tissue is different from person to person. So your tendon strength and my tendon strength will be different. I'm predominantly a cyclist these days more than a runner. So you're going to win in terms of uh, your plyometric strength. You're going to win in terms of your bone density. But I might have a stronger cardiovascular system. You know, so there's going to be a trade-off uh, in, 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 in those risk, those inherent risk factors. So the reason why clinical practice is interesting at times challenging and at times frustrating is that variation in, you know, somebody's Achilles tendinopathy will respond to X, Y, and Z, yet the next three people might not respond to the same protocol. So you have to have that experience and that, and that understanding that, again, it goes back to it, and I do bore people with it. Everybody is case study one. What are your risk factors and what are the risk factors that we can change and modify? And also, not to a lesser extent, but to a meaningful extent, what's your buy-in? You know, I'm expecting you, if you're my patient, to do the things that I'm asking you to do. And, and you'd be amazed at how often that doesn't happen, you know? People not following directions. I, I don't know that that I don't, it doesn't actually surprise me. I guess um, I mean both as a a person and just I don't know. I, I mean I see it with consumer products. People just not reading directions, not following directions, 
And it's obviously much more important when they're coming to see somebody like you and you're trying to resolve an injury and then not following directions. I, that's another, like, one of my undergrad degrees is in psychology. Um, so I have an interest in people. So I, I often come back to that kind of aspect, but just it's where I go, people are weird. Like, why would you not, why would you, you made the appointment, showed up for the appointment, went through the, you know, the diagnostics to figure out what's wrong. Mark gave you a regimen. Then you didn't follow it. Like you did all these other things and then stopped at the, like, why, why would you not follow through? Yes. And, and, and the other element to that is, and I'm in private practice full time. So people pay for that experience as well. And I do say to a reasonable number of patients per week, per month, per year, I can see you again in three weeks time and we can charge you the same amount of money and we can have exactly the same conversation. You know, which direction do you want to go in? Because when we first met, you said to me that you'd be willing to do anything to get this right. And, you know, we've established the fundamentals, which is, you know, a footwear strategy, maybe something inside footwear, a strength program, a load management, you know, program, an ice pack regime, vitamin D for your bone health, whatever that strategy might be. Yet you've only done 50% of what's, we talked about when we agreed with it at week one or week two, whatever that's going to be. And yeah, it's, um, and I guess it's the reason why we are busy in practice is, you know, people, and, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm part of this as well is people often do enough to function at a reasonable level. Are people prepared to go in the gym and get themselves stronger to be at a high level? Depends what their, their drive is, but from experience, I think, um, and it's probably human nature, you know, we do enough to get by at times, and that, mm -hmm. and that can be fine. Um, but I think when you're looking at recurrent injury, which we do for a, a small group of patients, fortunately, you know, if you said to me, uh, what are the fundamentals of risk factor management? Being strong, you know, being strong is fundamentally important to being an athlete of whatever description and, and in whatever discipline. It, yeah, I, I think you're, you're right on the money there with, we do just enough to get back to some kind of functionality and then like pull back. It, it's, I don't know if it's a matter of like, think of like, maybe the idea of like, you got stabbed. And if you pull the knife out, let's suppose that obviously this isn't how it actually works. But you pull the knife out, so now it doesn't hurt. Like it's healed up, but the knife is still like right next to your skin. You can get stabbed at any second. Yeah, but it's not stabbing me right now. Does that, it's that mentality like, well, it doesn't hurt anymore. It got taken out. Like, yeah, but if you move a half an inch to the right, you're going to get stabbed again. It, it, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, where it's like rehabbing an injury, get back to running and, uh, gosh, I've forgotten who I was speaking to about this. Oh, um, Scott Johnson, he's uh, author of the uphill athlete. Uh, I can't remember what episode number. So if you want to watch, listen to that, you'll have to go search for it. Sorry. Um, but he was talking about injuries with skiers and, whatever their main injury is the like the the 
greatest time of recurrence is like, I don't remember if it was nine weeks or nine months. It's, it's a considerable amount of time after they've already been cleared to practice again. And it can be mitigated by continuing the rehab protocol, which people generally don't do. So it's like they, they, they cleared it, they got the go ahead and then just go, I'm fine and forget about it. Yeah. Maintenance, maintenance programs are the hardest sell because, and again, you know, I, I probably won't be the first clinician people see in clinical practice privately, just because of the areas I work in London and Birmingham um, are in some well-established centers. And I guess the price point is, is maybe towards the higher end of the spectrum. So they may well have seen other people before they would venture to see, uh, see me and my various units. Um, what's interesting is there's, there's a lot of stories, which is going back to doing enough to get right. The question is, well, what did you do to maintain? Because the assumption is that when we run or when we're out running again, we, and we are creating the strength stimulus from the tissue, no question. Physiologically, you get cellular damage. That damage needs time to repair, recover, and strengthen. And that's how we get stronger and we build up robustness. But there's a support mechanism with strength programs as well. There's a maintenance element. We do it in professional football. We'll do two strength, dedicated strength sessions a week with our players, predominantly hamstrings and calf. You know, we mentioned about soleus. Soleus is a phenomenally important muscle. You know, it's your engine room. And as much as we do obsess about the glutes for all the right reasons, they're still primary stabilizers. Mm -hmm. You know, your soleus, six to eight times body weight will go through soleus, yet two to four times body weight might go through your glutes. So go figure, why do we all do squats and lunges? Well, we do it. We want good bum strength. Yeah. How much soleus work do you do? Most people don't do a lot. And actually, when you test soleus strength, even in elite sport and in your military, different subsets, people can fatigue at 25 times their own body weight on single leg calf work. But if you're doing that, how do you expect to be able to run 10K without mechanical consequence? Because if you're fatiguing at 25 reps your own body weight, something else has to do more work to at least duplicate, replicate the role of soleus. Going back to your analogy of soleus is, is having a problem, something else has got to work over time. Absolutely, that's a relationship. So go back to source. Let's optimize calf output. I bore people to death with soleus programs. <laughs> Because it's the fundamental lower leg muscle, in my opinion, but I come with a bias because I'm, I'm predominantly foot and ankle leg. You know, I'm more distal than proximal. And they all are important. But yeah, I will, I will give all my runners, yeah, probably all my runners some form of soleus program to work with. Not at the cost of gastroc, because I think gastroc, the, the second muscle group in the calf, will come along for the ride anyway, even in a soleus program. And actually, sometimes when you look at carb strength programs, they're predominantly gastroc mm -hmm. biased with no bent knee version of it. Well, right. if you're a runner, you have to have bent knee strength. You know, so it's you can see how these patterns build up and and, and all, all you can do is share your experience with your injured runner. Because, again, they've got one person's experience, which is theirs. But I've got thousands of people's experiences because that's what I've seen in clinical practice. And mm -hmm. you can give people a message and you can give people the programs and you can say, well, this is what I would do. And then actually when we've got you back running and you're hopefully not going to see me again for all the right reasons, you still need to think about this program. And if you go away on holiday for a week to 10 days and you don't run, you need to do this program whilst you're away, ideally, because otherwise you're going to come back deconditioned return to your two 10K runs a week and wonder why you got injured with four weeks in. Because you've lost that 
robustness in that even week to 10 days. And this is the only age-related thing I'll say, that deconditioning risk happens quicker as you get older. So, you know, I think it's even more important that as we get older, we try and commit to strength, lower leg strength somewhere in the system. Which is good timing because I am ready to head out on holiday here next in a couple of days. Although I am planning on running while I'm out. So we're doing, we're doing maintenance miles, um, not just taking time off. Uh, so hopefully we'll, hopefully won't be quite as many issues as taking time off and then having to rebuild um, all that kind of thing. But uh, Mark, as we're kind of winding down on time, there's a question I ask every single guest each particular season. Um, this season's question is, how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Um, so are we talking athletic goal or? Could be anything. Um, I think I'm very much glass half full in how I approach things. Um, this probably sounds very uh, sort of t-shirt logo-ish, but I don't really see problems. I'm just trying to find a solution. I think one of the best books I've ever read is Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. Um, he's, a, I don't know if you know him, but he's, a, he's an ex-GB table tennis player and he's now a, a journalist for, I think, The Times or something like that. But a really interesting book. What he does, it looks at different industries and different sectors and it, it, it's about how you learn from your mistakes. Um, and the aviation industry will probably be the best example of they just look at everything to make sure it doesn't happen again. So in, in my life, I try and work towards that. I don't really browbeat people about problems. So in my sector, for example, you know, I make a living predominantly from putting things inside footwear orthotics. I work closely with different labs historically. And whenever I flag things in manufacturing, I've, you know, again, I go at that with a, look, I'm not here to create an issue. I'm not, I'm not, I don't care who or why it's happened. I just want to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I think... Um, you know, when, when you don't reach your goal, then look at what are the factors that stopped you getting to that. Were they realistic in the first point? Did you really want it bad enough? And I would say that is the same in both clinical practice. Did I want to study enough for this? Did I want to listen to other people in terms of how they manage this problem? So I think you have to use the resources around you to achieve those goals. But if it's a goal that you are solely uh, in charge of, you've got to ask yourself the key questions how badly did I want it? And did I give myself enough chance to do it? And I think in athletic performance, you know, I know where I sit on that spectrum of good, bad or indifferent. You know, I'm a half decent cyclist. Um, I was a reasonable runner. I was a reasonable footballer. Um, so my goals at the moment for me with cyclocross, for example, is I don't want to come last. You could say that I set the bar low on that one, but I just didn't know what to expect from it. I'm sort of 10 races in now. And I'm sat in sort of the top 10 in the region, which I'm, I'm pleased about. I'm sort of partly surprised. My goal for next season is to firmly be in the top five. Um, so I think in terms of goal setting, they have to be realistic with all the pressures that you've got around you. You know, I've got clinical, I've got my work pressures. I guess I've got my, my family. Um, you know, you've got all these challenges, but yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I don't fall over myself when something's not achieved. I just look at whether it was achievable in the first place. And, and was I, again, was I focused enough to, to, to get to that end point? You know, for me now, it's, it's my fitness. I'm using the last six months of this year 
just to change body shape a little bit, um, just to you know lose a, a little bit of weight and try and put on a little bit of uh, strength in my upper body, help with my bone density risk as well because I'm a prominent cyclist. And I think you know as I hit my target uh, at the turn of the year, I think I will have achieved those goals. Now you know do I reset in 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 the new year and go right? Do I need to drop even more body weight? You know I'll be 68 kilos by the time I get to where I want to be having been 74 kilos in July the 1st and I've actually really enjoyed the process of going through that so I think for me goal setting is fundamentally important in every element of what I do both clinical practice you know with family you're not in control of your kids but you know you can hopefully give them the advice to do the right thing so yeah I think you know goal setting although crucial it doesn't define me necessarily it just gives me targets to work towards. Otherwise I'd probably just end up on the couch every day doing very little. It's quite a thorough answer. Um, Mark, uh, I know it's going to be a little tough for my North American listeners since uh, you're in the UK, they probably aren't going to take a plane to come see you, but um, are there, you have any social media outlets, any, any place people can engage with you, check you out, see what you're up to, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm probably one of those anomalies where I don't do social media at all. Um, I'm not really interested in other people's lives beyond a certain point, and I certainly don't want to uh, publicize what I do outside of my work commitments. I'm, I'm on, you know, I'm 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 accessible on on, on um, through my website. I can certainly um, guide and advise where where possible. Clearly, it's difficult without seeing the person to to do it beyond a certain point. I think what we learned through COVID, through lockdown, is that things can be done virtually. It doesn't really matter where you are in the world. I've had some interesting um, experiences in the last 18 months where we've managed people that have, you know, I work in London for part of my week. People live in other parts of the world that would work in London and then go back to their various venues, the Middle East being a good example. You know, we've managed people through their stress fractures virtually, you know, by just, you know, hands-on is important at times, but, you know, having... You know, how do we form a, a rehab program that can be done as well? So, so long story short, you know, if people are struggling and, and, and they're, they're not finding answers, you know, reaching out and sometimes getting a, somebody else's viewpoint is not impossible. But yeah, my website is really the, um, the only port of call. And uh, I think if you Google me, you'll find various things that I've done in the past, which again, predominantly cycling and running related. And it's, you know, I, I think they're useful blogs and, 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 and bits of information and it's uh, hopefully should should have resonance with, with some of your audience. Oh, that should be great. And uh, I know uh, you and I are kind of similar. I do have social profiles, but I have really kind of cut down on the amount of time I spend on them. Um, so I absolutely understand not really having that outlet um, and, and probably more of us maybe should do that. Um, but despite that, you're here with me and gave, you know, had a great conversation today. So I, I appreciate you doing that. Um, and hopefully you, you have a good evening. Thank you, Jesse. Appreciate your time. Thank you.